This Janet Mefford Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it. And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Many people have said that the division in America today is so serious that it's akin to the division that was present at the time right before the Civil War. How did our country become so divided? Well, of course, it's a complicated question, but one way to understand the modern day shift to America bashing and the destruction of statues of American heroes and the open denunciation of American ideals is to better understand the history of progressivism. And so we're going to do that today with Dr. Ronald Pistrito who is graduate dean and professor of politics at Hillsdale College, where he teaches political philosophy, American political thought, and American politics. He's the author of seven books, and today we'll be discussing his latest, America Transformed, The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism. And Dr. Pastrito, it's wonderful to have you here. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Janet. Thank you. Well, you say that the progressive era was this first major period in our nation's political development to feature the open and direct criticism of our Constitution, which is really interesting. Why do you think that's an important thing for Americans to understand? Well, as you said in the in the intro to your segment here, the, the country is so divided today, and uh, it's so much more out in the open these days than, than it used to be even recently, uh, that there's just such hostility to the history of the country and what it stood for in the Constitution. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is, is to kind of let people know that there's actually a long history to this. And it's, it's a movement that's been going on for 100 plus years. It's, we're seeing the culmination of it in our time, unfortunately, uh, but actually it goes way back. And, and that's kind of what the book's about. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about the progressive era, many people will think of Woodrow Wilson or they'll think of FDR. They'll think of the social gospel movement, all of which you get into in your book. Where would you place the beginning of the progressive era? When did the progressive movement, as we know it today, really begin when you go back to trace its roots? Well, I would say the late 19th century. And, and the reason I would go there is because it began as a kind of intellectual movement. Um, many, many bad things do in history, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. it, it began as an intellectual movement in the universities, and the, and the, the colleges really transformed in America in the, in the time, uh, say, between the conclusion of the Civil War and, and around 1900. And the progressives went to the places where, where ideas percolate. And this is what then fed down you know, a generation or so later into the things we might more commonly recognize in history as part of progressivism, the, the progressive presidencies and changes to our institutions and policies. Uh, but really go back to the universities and the importation of, uh, of some foreign ideas, ideas critical of, of our founding principles. Uh, that that's where to start, I think. Yeah. So when you're talking about the fact that progressivism should be understood as a really a coherent set of principles with a common purpose, what would you describe as the first principles of progressivism going back to the late 19th century? The first principles were an argument to basically get over or or move beyond our original principles and original ideas. The the progressives thought that history had, had passed the Constitution by. Uh, times had changed. 
history had brought about a whole new host of problems that the founders could never have foreseen when they framed our Constitution. And the argument was, as history changes, as new problems arise, we have to have a new understanding of government. Uh, and there, there's part of that, of course, that the founders themselves understood perfectly well. They knew things would change. That's why they put an amendment process in the Constitution, for example. But the progressives were much more radical. They wanted to change not just the mechanisms of government. They wanted to change the purpose of government, the idea that it's there to secure rights, that it's limited. Uh, all of that, the progressives thought we had gotten wrong from the beginning. Wow. Well, of course, that's kind of uh, understandable when we look at what progressives are doing today. We see exactly that what you've just described is still alive and well with us. But when they were talking originally about getting over our original principles, as you put it, the fact that history had passed the Constitution by, what were the main issues that were really on the front burner that were causing them to say that? Or was it just a general ideological position that they took absent or irrespective of what was going on at the time politically? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Like, like any ideology, it needs an occasion or an opportunity to, you know, to come out and to, and to do damage. And so, you know, the, the ideology had been there for some time. The occasion was all of the different social pressures that they saw before them, pardon me, uh, in, you know, around the turn of the 20th century. So the, the immigration, the industrialization, uh, the, uh, the condition of, of, of big cities, uh, where you had just a lot of extreme poverty. Uh, you mentioned the social gospelers, and, and some of them you know, grew up in the in their ministries were in the harshest kind of conditions, and in places like Hell's Kitchen in New York. Yep. So, you know, th- this was an, an occasion, and and you know, a lot of the corruption that they saw in government also in, in the latter decades of the 19th century. So there were criticisms of the spoil system that we needed civil service reform, and the progressives partly took the civil service reform movement and greatly radicalized it and expanded it into a very broad argument for constitutional change. Uh, so there was, there was, there was great opportunity for, for the kind of flowering of this ideology. Yeah, there was a lot going on at the time. It's kind of interesting to me because you say, I believe it was in your intro, that the turn toward the modern liberal state in American politics was grounded in the progressive rejection, uh, as you mentioned, of the founders' political principles. And yet you say that there's actually disagreement over that thesis within conservative intellectual circles where they actually do obviously acknowledge the problem of progressivism. What exactly is that argument, just out of curiosity, because I thought that was an interesting point that you made. Yeah, one would think, and it's common to assume that all, all conservatively oriented people are on the same page about the, the goodness of the American founding and, uh, and its, its sort of you know, desirability, and thus would see the problem of progressivism in, in the ways that I've, that I've described it. But there's actually a big contingent, uh, at least on the intellectual side of, of the conservative movement, I think perhaps not so much among you know, sort of ordinary uh, rank-and-file conservatives, where the, they say the problem was there all along. Uh, the problem was there in the founding itself, in its acceptance of certain principles of, of the Enlightenment. Uh, and so what the progressives did was, the argument goes, it's not my argument, of course, but what the progressives did is not to invent something new, but to take advantage of this sort of corruption that was that was there all already from the beginning and just 
uh, you know, kind of went off like a time bomb that had been ticking all throughout the 19th century. That's interesting. So how do you refute that when they're making the case that it was kind of baked into the system from the beginning? Why is that not the case? Well, I think the biggest piece of evidence against that view is, is the progressives themselves. If you, if you look at the progressive writings, it's one of the reasons why they're very interesting to read. They're very open and honest about what they're doing. They, they will tell you that in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish, the ideas of the American Constitution have to be overcome. Yeah. And so the progressives don't think that the founders were their allies. They, they, they know what they're doing. Right. They say, no, we have to overcome this original philosophy. Uh, and so I think the progressive, you know, the argument that you're getting there in certain conservative circles in a way contradicts what the progressives themselves understood themselves uh, how they understood their own role. Yeah. Well, right. I mean, and you can see this. There was this recent move by the Federal Reserve. It was reported to tell people not to use the term founding fathers. That seems awfully hostile toward America right there is one example among many. That's a great, that's a great example. And I think what you're seeing uh, now, you know, for a while, one of the reasons why progressivism has been successful, certainly in the 20th century, is it it took root under under the guise of continuity. And what I mean by that is you know, someone like Franklin Roosevelt, he didn't go out and criticize the American founding. He presented what he was doing as just kind of the next logical step or, or an outgrowth, not a rejection. Whereas today's progressives are much more explicit that what they want to accomplish requires a repudiation in a way, an, almost an, an erasing of of all that has come before. And that's, uh, you know, that's what's kind of shocking about, I think, to a lot of people about today's politics. Totally right. We're going to have to take a short pause. We'll come back with Dr. Ronald Pistrito. America Transformed is his book. We'll discuss it more when we come back on Janet Meffer today. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International, engaging the world with God's Word for more than 80 years. Believers in Africa are hungry to read their very own Bibles. Hear from Pastor Jeremiah in Zimbabwe. The church is growing very fast in the northern part of the country where Tsonga-speaking people and Zulu-speaking people and, uh, you know, we find that there's a movement of the Holy Spirit there where the hunger or spiritual hunger is very much visible. If you can imagine 10 Christians right now in many places in Africa. On average, nine have no access to the Bible. Here's Lillian in Mozambique. We went to this church just on the outskirts of Maputo. Uh, the church had about um, about 100 people and the, the only person actually who had a Bible was the pastor. But everybody else had never seen a Bible. And that gives us motivation to want to go more, to do more, to reach to as many people as we can, you know, where God gives us opportunity to go there and just take the word of God. Through Bible studies and resources that introduce people to Jesus Christ, Bible League is faithfully discipling new believers in Kenya, Ghana, Ethiopia, and many other African countries. Here's an evangelist named Joseph in South Africa. We were in a place called Mpumalanga. The lady there is about 60, 62 years or so. She literally cried 
cried. She knelt down and she cried. She never, at the age of 60, she never had a Bible. It is so much fulfilling just to see people like her rejoicing um, when they receive their Bibles. You can be the answer to a Bibleist believer praying for God's word through Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa. $5 sends one Bible, $50 sends 10, and your gift right now of any size will help us reach our goal to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa. Call 800 Yes Word, 800 Y E S W O R D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Ronald Pistrito, graduate dean and professor of politics at Hillsdale College. His new book is called America Transformed, The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism. And you were making the point, Dr. Pistrito, before we went to the break that, you know, progressivism, basically, when you go back, you see that it took root under this guise of what you said was continuity. In other words, you had Franklin Delano Roosevelt not coming out and attacking the United States. It's the founding of the United States. These days, though, we're seeing a different thing. So what would you say was the tipping point between old liberalism, as a lot of people like to refer to it now, and progressivism? What were some of the important developments that led the movement to where it was under FDR to where it is today? Well, I think you'd, you'd have to go through an account of the 60s uh, and, its, and its influence in, you know, in American history. And I think since the 1960s, the, the left has, you know, they've started to see the the success, especially of their takeover, not only of the universities but over the major organs of, of journalism, and so you know they're they're able to uh, to say things in the open today that they wouldn't have dared to do a generation or two earlier because these, you know, it's taken a long time for these institutions to be taken over. Yes, uh, and and you know as Someone who works in a in a in the setting of higher education, uh, you know, I could tell you what you know how how thorough and how penetrating that takeover has been. Now, I happen to teach in an institution, Hillsdale College, which which stands almost alone, uh, not having been uh, taken over in that way. But it, but in a way, it's the exception that proves the rule. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's just taken those decades and decades of preparation. Uh, to where now you can have a much more open repudiation, not only of our original politics, but of, you know, of our culture, of our of our traditional faith, uh, you know, the, the whole gamut. Yeah, you're right about that. And when you talk about FDR and Wilson in your book and the impact that they had, one of the things that you mentioned was that their democratic theory aimed to popularize American government, but also delegate power to expert administrators. So now we've got this problem of the modern administrative state, and it seems like you can't ever put the genie back in the bottle. How is that kind of linked to progressivism, this idea that we have experts or we have bureaucrats and we have this endless you know, sea of people who are not accountable directly to Americans who are running things, as it were? Well, I think it's a good question because we've just lived through a year of that. Yes, we? yes. Where, <laughs> you know, you, you see the idea that, you know, those whom we elect to govern us, this is supposed to be a republic. This is supposed to be, you know, if, if we have a, a problem like a pandemic, like a, an environmental threat, whatever the case may be, that we have different views about what the government's reaction to that should be, and those uh, who are in government have to act in a way that, that reflect our views, or, or we can vote them out of office. The, the, the problem is uh, what the progressives wanted to do, because they were so 
uh, enamored with the, the what they thought the power of science and with the advances in university education, they wanted to take a class of experts and kind of put them beyond the control or the accountability to the ordinary voter. Politics was corrupt in their time. They thought it was low, it's self-interested. We need to kind of preserve a, a, a certain separate space. Uh, and of course, government was getting itself into so much more of ordinary life than what it had uh, you know, say prior, prior to the 20th century that they needed all of these agencies and all of these extra people because it was a task that far exceeded the original institutions that, that, that the framers had set up. And it's been something that's been kind of percolating for, for a long time now, and we've, we've seen it in issues all throughout the 20th and now 21st century, but the pandemic really brought it home. I think to a lot of us, like, no, wait, wait a minute, we're, we don't have any say in this. And they're saying that science rules, not the consent of the governed, and whether or not it's science is even somewhat questionable. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we've really, I think this is something that's finally hit home with people because it affected everybody so deeply uh, over the last year, year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right. We got a little tired of trust the science, trust the experts when we're looking at certain yeah. experts who are on TV all the time who change their stories and we're not allowed to hold them accountable in any way. And you're right. I think that that may be something that ends up being a good thing that people got to see it with their own eyes, perhaps whom had never seen it before in the same way. Yes, I think that's right. And, you know, we had during the 2020 campaign, uh, Joe Biden even said at one point that, uh, the president of the United States, the elected president of the United States, should be quiet. We shouldn't see him commenting on this. We should, he should turn things over completely to the unelected scientists, who, as you say, uh, would be bad enough if they actually knew what they were talking about. But it became quite evident that they did not, uh, but were willing to act as if they did. And so. Uh, you know, it really was a, a, a lesson. It's a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. Well, now it's interesting. Many people have commented on progressivism in tandem with Marxism and to what extent do those things overlap. But it seems progressivism, when you're talking about what you just mentioned, is also overlapping a bit with technocracy. Now we just have to hand over all of our expertise, you know, all the expertise that we should be, I guess, giving to people has to come from people who are quote unquote experts. How do you place progressivism within a Marxist context? context versus a technocratic context. How do those movements kind of overlap, if at all? Well, they do overlap. It's a great question. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you had a whole semester with us here at Hillsdale, you know, we'd go into the, all the dirty details of it. But, <laughs> you know, I, I, there's an overlap insofar as the progressives, while they certainly did not identify as socialists, while progressives like Wilson and Theodore Roosevelt actually ran against the socialist in uh, the 1912 election, uh, nonetheless, they were very upfront about the fact that the that the emphasis on the collective, on on the good of the whole, uh, always would trump the the rights of the individual. That they weren't going to let, say, individual property rights or individual liberty rights get in the way of, of progress for the whole. And yeah. and Wilson, at one point, in a very revealing essay, says, you know, that's socialism and democracy are are in principle about the same thing. On the other hand, of course, uh, this this whole has to be managed by people who are enlightened, uh, and that's where you get into the more what you're calling a technocracy. But even Marx told us that that uh, you know the pro- the proletariat need leadership, 
right? They yes. need those who are enlightened to lead them. And yes. so there is a lot of overlap, yes. Well, the Politburo needs its Mercedes while the rest of us are in squalor <laughs> with 12 people in a one-bedroom apartment. It worked out well in the Soviet Union. I guess it's going to work out well for us. But this is the thing that really gets me because when you're talking about these uh, wide-eyed, you know, younger generations of Americans who are enthralled with socialism, at least on paper, and have no memory of the Cold War, this idea that the collective is always a better thing than the individual Uh, We have evidence now, hard history, hard data. Uh, We have testimonies from people around the world who suffered under communism and this idea that the collective is always the better way. What is it about the history that we're just refusing to learn from, at least the modern day progressives? Well, I think you put your finger on on, uh, a main problem here, which is that so, so many now have no recollection of what what communism was in practice. Yeah. Uh, they, they have, and, and you know, I, I'm now barely old enough to you know, sort of remember, you know, kind of what the depictions of life behind the Iron Curtain and, you know, what it was like to grow up with just sort of this clear kind of good versus evil division in the world. And, you know, so that's, that's you know, extremely uh, influential and, and telling. And, you know, I think it's, it's also the case that our prosperity uh, you know, we're, we're an extremely prosperous nation. Some are working very hard to change that right now, of course, but, yes. uh, you know, we're an extremely prosperous nation. And so we have the luxury to, uh, to tinker with these very dangerous ideas. Now they're self-destructive ideas and they'll do us in, in the end, but prosperity brings that, that luxury. Yeah, I think that is a very important point that people need to keep in mind. It's almost as if we got bored and decided to start playing mind games with the entire country. And I mean, when you're talking about some of these ideals that a boy can be a girl at will and gender is fluid and some of these extra ideas that are flowing into culture, not just the critical race theory and the critical theory and identity politics and intersectionality, but even the idea that reality is not reality and you have to go along with that. At what point is the irrationality just implode upon itself. It's not sustainable, it would seem. I would think not. Uh, and, and I, you know, I worry about what it will look like when it inevitably uh, implodes on itself and, and who will be hurt by it and how many, how many will be hurt. I do think, you know, this is something where, you know, as influential as the original progressives were, you know, they would have probably gotten off the train well before, you know, some of the more uh, crazy things, you know, the crazy cultural things that you mentioned, uh, you know, but in a way, even though you wouldn't have an endorsement of any of this stuff by a Theodore Roosevelt or a Woodrow Wilson, certainly, but once, once you do what those original progressives urged us to do, which is to get away from nature as a standard in moral and political life, to say there's no such thing as a permanent human nature that can tell us what government ought to be like. Once you get away from that, even though they were only interested in doing it in, in more limited ways, it kind of you know, opened the, the possibility going forward in the 20th and now 21st century for a, a kind of um, a rudderless uh, government and a rudderless view of the human person. Uh, and I think you've just seen the inevitable, inevitable results of that. Yeah, I do, too. Do you see things getting more authoritarian as we keep going down this path? I, I do until there's until there's an upheaval. I mean, I think I, I make allusion to that at, at the end. Um, I'm not good at predictions, but, 
you know, I, I sort of say, look, you know, the, the last time we had this sort of uh, division was in the 1850s, and, and it had to get worse before it got better. Uh, and I don't know if that means a hot war. I don't know what it, you know, who knows what, yeah. what it means. I think it will be mean, mean something very damaging to our country. Well, I think you're right about that, which is why people need to read your book. It's called America Transformed, The Rise and Legacy of American Progressivism by Dr. Ronald Pastrito. So good to have you here. Wonderful book and so good to talk to you, Dr. Pastrito. Thanks very, very much for being here. Thanks for having me on, Janet. I enjoyed it. Oh, me too. Thanks again. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today podcast is brought to you in part by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. The rise of critical race theory has created a growing cultural war over the real history of the United States. But this also raises an important question. What do states actually expect their schools to teach and their children to learn when it comes to U.S. history and civics? This is the subject of a new report just out from the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. It's called The State of State Standards for Civics and U.S. History in 2021. And here to give us more details is David Griffith, the Institute's Senior Research and Policy Associate. David, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Janet. Well, you bet. I know this report evaluates the K-12 through civics and history standards adopted by the states and D.C. based on the quality, the completeness, and the rigor of their content, the clarity of its presentation. When you were looking into this, what did you discover about what the states and what D.C. were all doing pertaining to teaching history and civics? Yeah, well, I think at the biggest, uh, big picture level, it's, it's a substantive no man's land. Uh, you use the word culture war in the introduction. That's, that's a great word for it. Uh, we found many states that are not specifically requiring much of anything, to be honest. Hmm. Uh, you find where we talk about the skills uh, that students should be learning or acquiring um, you find some sort of vague language about the Constitution or particular periods of history, but there's very few specifics, uh, and uh, there's it, it, the big picture that you take away from it is that this space is so politicized. Uh, that people, we haven't been able to agree to much of anything. Oh, wow. Well, you found five states, well, I should say four states in the District of Columbia to be rated exemplary in both subjects. How do you actually get the rating of exemplary? What kinds of standards do you have to reach in order to get that rating? Yeah. Well, so we pulled together a bipartisan group of experts in both subjects. Uh, The first thing we did was we came up with our criteria. We a long time debating what excellent looks like. Our basic vision from the report is that students will make at least two full passes for U.S. history, one in lower grades, uh, one in higher grades. We think that's reasonable given that there are 13 grades to work with. And then on top of that, we really feel like uh, substantive civic content should be embedded more or less from day one, starting in kindergarten, first grade, second grade. And at the high school level, uh, States should be requiring at least a year of U.S. history and at least a semester of civics. Um, 
this is supposed to be one of the core missions of our public schools, uh, and we've been neglecting it for far too long. Wow. Did you gain any insight as to why that's the case when you talked earlier about many states not requiring much of anything? Why? I mean, did you get to that answer? Yeah, there are, there are many reasons. Um, the biggest one, as they said, is, is simply that the space is so politicized. For the sake of our kids, we, the adults need to strike some sort of truce, right? Right, uh, right. You know, uh, if you get five people together, you will wind up with six opinions <laughs> about how U.S. history should be taught. But there are some things we should all be able to agree to, right? Um, if I say the word George Washington, I think most people should be able to agree that he should be covered. Yes. Uh, the same goes for Martin Luther King, the same goes for Abraham Lincoln, etc., and so forth. In other words, um, we, th- there is room for uh, and space for real um, agreement. <laughs> it's too strong a word, but, you know, compromise. Yeah. And um, we, we have to sort of get as far down that road as we can, um, because if we don't, uh, then the, the sort of practical effect is that kids don't really learn anything. And that's not actually what anybody on either side wants. No, no. I mean, we, I, we should be able to agree on the fact that there are facts of history that every American child should be taught. And you're right. The politicized space is not helping the kids. In fact, you found that 20 states were rated inadequate in both subjects. Who are these states and what are they doing wrong exactly? Yeah, I, I would say... There's a bunch of things, but the biggest thing that I would say is it, not much is happening in grades K through 8. Um, we found, just as an example, uh, Iowa, which is, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's leaning red, but it, it's kind of in the middle. Um, that, you know, there's really no evidence that kids are supposed to learn any U.S. history until high school. Wow. I mean, that's nine years of social studies, yep. right? What yep. are they learning exactly? Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, world history is super important, right? Other things are important, but U.S. history should be basically job one. Um, it, it, it's really a mix. I, I, it, there, are, there are red states, there are blue states, there are purple states. Honestly, I think the purple states might struggle the most because um, nobody's really in charge, right? Yes. And so there's no unified vision of, of what it's supposed to look like. Well, that's a shame. I mean, how, how much did you find out, for example, about what K-12 through students were learning regarding, say, reading the U.S. Constitution, reading the Declaration of Independence, or reading some of the famous speeches, you know, or the Emancipation Proclamation, some of these famous speeches or, or any of these founding documents on which our country is based? How much of that is going on? Did you take a look at that at all? Yeah, we did. There are references to founding documents. Uh, there are sometimes specific references to specific documents. We're actually asking for even more than that, to be honest, because um, it, saying that kids should read the Constitution is a good start. They should. Uh, but the truth is, the Constitution, as I'm sure you know, is uh, it's not that long, but it's pretty dense. Yes, yes. <laughs> and you know, there, there are parts of it that, that frankly, are, are not that important um, for kids to understand. And then there are other parts uh, that even adults don't really grasp the full significance of. True. Uh, and so to really mm, point teachers in the right direction, you need a bit more specificity. You need to say, you know, kids should know the first five, you know, the five freedoms in the First Amendment, right? Like that's foundational. Yes. Um, they should know what due process is. They should understand the principle of equal protection, right? Um, so 
I don't want to say there's no guidance, but the guidance tends to be so high level that really you could do almost anything with it. Well, I, I think you're right about that. Uh, the Bill of Rights is a very important thing for children to understand. Do you have specific recommendations on what age children should begin to read those documents and begin to discuss concepts like you know natural rights and get into individual liberty and those concepts? Is that something that should begin before high school? It absolutely should. Um, you know, many states tackle the basics starting in, in, in third grade, fourth grade, and fifth grade. So, for example, many of the states with strong standards, they will make a first pass through the three branches of government in third grade. Yes. Um, you know, Massachusetts and Alabama, two very different states, uh, devote essentially all of fifth grade to U.S. history. Uh, and, they, you know, they do it in slightly different ways, but there's a lot of overlap. And, um, yeah, absolutely, right? I mean, it, elementary school is a huge problem, right? And part of the reason is that, uh, you know, policymakers often don't have as much leverage there. We don't start testing until third grade, blah, blah, blah. You know, there aren't course requirements. Um, but what we really need is for elementary teachers and principals to get the message, right? Which is, you know, start them early, Right. Uh, it, 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 they're not too young to understand some, some really important concepts, and we tend to underestimate kids. Definitely. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate when you were talking about the states with inadequate civics and U.S. history standards, they provide overbroad or vague or insufficient guidance for curriculum and instruction. I mean, you have to have an overall plan if you're a teacher of any subject on how you're going to communicate the information so the students walk away knowing something. I mean, it doesn't really help, does it, if you have instruction that is overbroad in which the kid walks away and go, eh, I don't know, is something about the founders? I don't know. You know, that's not helping anybody and that's the whole purpose of education which is just very frustrating to learn about I think for many many parents it is very frustrating and it you know there's another big tension here which is yep. people don't like it when you you know when you micromanage them they don't like it when you micromanage your schools I get it but we have to have a bit more guidance there has to be a plan right yep. uh, somebody has to come up with a plan and say fourth and fifth grade are going to be U.S. history uh, and we're going to cover these Civic concepts in this year, and you know, do it. You know, do it. Put your own spin on it. You've got, you know, the floor is yours. But these are the things that need to happen. I think that that's really, really good. Well, you can check out the state of state standards for civics in U.S. history in 2021 over at FordhamInstitute.org. David Griffith with us. Thank you so much, David, for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. Oh, it was nice to talk to you. Thanks again. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. 
Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. I would just like to ask the question, what is the cost to this country if we don't fight the woke, if we don't fight the LGBT activists, if we don't fight the race baiters who want to balkanize the United States and completely rip it stem from stern? What is the cost of not fighting these people? I'm not talking about getting out any sort of weaponry, but I'm, I'm talking about in terms of the cultural war, which is, I, I think, safe to say, completely out of control. I'm going to give you an example of this. And I give you lots of examples, but I, this one just took the cake. And this was from a few days ago, but there's an update to this story. So I'm going to play it for you in case you haven't had the chance to listen to it. There is a Republican representative in the state of Ohio who introduced this addition to a bill in that state that would allow college athletes to make money off their images and likenesses and names. And she got up to the microphone and was trying to make the case for prohibiting boys who think they're girls from participating in girls sports in high schools and also in colleges. Totally sensible. Yes, Protect women's sports. Wasn't that the whole purpose of Title IX in the first place? Uh, Neil Gorsuch might have a different opinion, but that was the purpose of Title IX, to protect girls, to make sure that girls had their sports and boys had theirs. This is what we have done as a country for a number of decades. But when she got up to the mic, it's just indescribable how the Democrat lawmakers reacted. And you're not going to miss it. You're going to hear her talking, Gina Powell, and then you're going to hear how the Democrats reacted. These people are elected officials. Listen for yourself. This is cut one. The Save Women's Sports Act is a fairness issue for women to be able to achieve their dreams and athletics in our state. And it's crucial to preserving women's rights and the integrity of women's and girls sports. Across our country, female athletes are currently losing scholarships, opportunities, medals, education and training opportunities. This amendment will require schools that are part of the OHSAA to designate separate teams for participants of the biological sex. No school school interscholastic conference or organization that regulates interscholastics shall permit biological males to participate on athletic team or an athletic competition designated only for biological female participants. 
Can you believe that? Somebody online was saying the demon possessed have come out in Ohio. It's a little hard to argue with that. That's not some infiltration of ACT UP or Antifa showing up in the chamber and going berserk. Those are the elected officials. The Democrats are acting like that. Now, you tell me what happens in a nation when the elected officials are behaving like the nut jobs who are out there burning things and looting things and causing destruction and chaos in the streets of this country when the public officials are acting like that. We're at a crisis point. Now, here's the update to this. This has just come out on The Daily Advocate. It's just so depressing. It says State Representative Gina Powell's efforts to pass the Save Women's Sports Act legislation, which would have required schools, state institutions of higher education and private colleges to designate separate single sex sports teams, hit a speed bump at the governor's desk and caused some commotion in the General Assembly. Right. You just heard this. Originally introduced as House Bill 61, the Save Women's Sports Act was added as a floor amendment to Senate Bill 187, which has to do with that thing I mentioned before, college athletes being able to earn compensation for their name, image and likeness. As Powell introduced the act on the House floor, Democratic lawmakers pounded their desks and yelled, seeking to disrupt the reading of the amendment. Let me just pause here and say... Not only are they acting like out-of-control children, but I don't know why it was that Representative Powell had to keep her composure rather than stopping in the middle of it and calling them out on their juvenile behavior. It's outrageous to, to think about this. At any rate, Powell said, I can't explain always why the left doesn't like some of the things that we do, but this is a simple bill, an amendment to say, hey, we want to protect the integrity of women's sports in the state of Ohio. I think the left is frustrated, and oftentimes they speak out in ways that are very inappropriate. Boy, she's nice, isn't she? Well, I mean, she, I mean that literally. She's being very kind. She's being very measured. I don't think I would have been that way. When I had the House floor, she said the speaker did address me, which means I have the ability to speak. And instead of waiting for his turn to speak, he decided to erupt into yelling, meaning the lawmaker you heard. And as you heard in the clip, just literally banging on top of his desk. I don't even think any of the members could hear my speech. That's how loud it really was. Now, listen to this. Governor DeWine signed an executive action, however, allowing college athletes to earn money off their name, image and likeness, bypassing Powell's amendment. DeWine went on record opposing the amendment saying the welfare of those young people needs to be absolutely most important to this issue, whether that young person is transgender or not. Okay, Governor DeWine, so you're on the record then as saying girls don't matter. Duly noted. Why is this guy governor of Ohio? In a Facebook post, Representative Powell excoriated the governor's decision and said when Governor Mike DeWine signed the NIL executive order, he turned his back on millions of females in Ohio. His misogynistic dictatorship needs to end. Ohio women deserve better. And then she added, I would say Governor DeWine's response is from an individual who's scared of the woke left and not willing to stand up for the millions of women in our state. Well said, Representative Powell. So you see what happens? You get good people in government who are trying to do the right thing. And then a guy with no courage, who's another public official, and watches the out of sane antics and theater of this essentially five-year-old Democratic lawmaker pounding on his desk, pounding on his desk. Well, I don't want to make them mad. What does an adult do? If you had a five-year-old who was behaving like that, 
and you're a good parent. I know you're a good parent. What would you do with your five-year-old? If I had a five-year-old who was my five-year-olds would not act like that because I wouldn't let them get away with that kind of behavior. But you would take care of it, wouldn't you, as responsible adults? And you would say, honey, we're not acting like that. You're going to stop it right now or else, dot, 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 insert punishment here. That's how it goes. But if you act like that in politics, you intimidate the governor. He doesn't want to do anything to make the LGBT activists mad. That would just, I mean... See what I mean? There, there are consequences for not having a spine. And we better start getting a spine in this country. Here's another example of this. Did you hear what they just did in Illinois, my home state? Uh, don't miss it, by the way. Uh, for years, we've always heard in Chicago about the aldermen. Those are the politicians, the city council there in the city of Chicago. Aldermen, aldermen. Well, apparently there was this bill that was all about changing the date of the Illinois primary elections. And tucked into the bill was... Oh, we're going to change the word for aldermen. This was something Leo Terrell addressed over on Fox. Listen to cut two. Illinois has a new law in the books that changes the title of state officials in the spirit of inclusivity. Aldermen will become alderperson and congressmen will become congressperson. The state representative who co-authored the bill defended it saying, quote, we see a lot of he's and him's. And now we have, you know, not just women in office, but we have people who may not identify with any gender. We want to make sure that our voting and our election cycle process is inclusive for everyone. Lisa, is this change in terminology necessary? No, of course it's not. And and it's insane. Leo, you know this. We've reached just peak insanity as a country, but it matters and words matter. And that's why the left has tried to rewrite and change the definition of words, because if they control the language, they control the rhetoric. It also helps them control the public and the information. They get to control what is deemed right or wrong, but think about an insane country that somehow we're saying, you know, birthing person, as opposed to saying, mother, only women can give birth. I mean, and part of this is denying just things that are, you know, categorically true uh, and, and denying truth. And that's really the essence of this well, for the left. So I, I do think these fights matter, and I think words hmm. matter. Well, they matter more than we realize. That's Lisa Booth, Fox News contributor, by the way. We have let this go too far. I think what's happened is people believe all right, we're dealing with the insane. We better let them have something or they're going to get more worked up and then we're really going to have a problem on our hands. But what happens is we have allowed them to have way too much. You know, you you give a little, then you give a little more, then you give a little more and pretty soon you've got faux marriage, the law of the land. It's not a law, it's a Supreme Court decision, but that's a whole nother show. Then you start getting Bruce Jenner in a corset and the next thing you know, you have Disney Channel characters, uh, actresses and actors coming out as pansexuals. Yeah, that's totally normal. You know, and now you have a Washington Post piece that was run an opinion piece saying, you know, I think we really need to add I got to be careful in how I say this because this is a Christian show. You can Google it if you'd like. But we need to have even more uh, horrific sexual immorality at gay pride parades. Let's just put it that way. That's where we're headed. Drag queen story hours. That's just normal, right? We're not a culture in free fall. Listen. If we believe that all it takes for bad people to succeed is for good people to do nothing, we're living that out. And we are the ones who have the Holy Spirit as Christians. We are the ones who obey the Lord our God. We are the ones who honor and worship Him. And we have a responsibility, I believe, as ambassadors for Christ to proclaim God's truth to this culture. And we're going to need some courage to do it. But I pray by God's grace and mercy that we will have that courage. 
God bless you. Thanks for being with us. We got to go, but we'll see you next time. God bless. This hour has been brought to you by Bible League International. We want to send 1,500 Bibles to Africa through Bible League's Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa campaign. $5 sends one Bible. Call now, 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD.